Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. How much control should Christian groups exercise over their people? Should people be free to research and diverge from past ways of thinking, or do they always have to just toe the line? In this interview, I talk with William Barlow, who grew up in the Way International, but ran into problems when he started suggesting changes to the administrators at the Way Corps Leadership Training Program. After three and a half years of attending, when he was just a few months from graduation, they dismissed him from the program, dashing his dreams of becoming a minister. Thankfully, his story did not end there. Here now is podcast 313, Questioning Way International Doctrines with Will Barlow. Welcome to Restitutio, Will Barlow. So glad to have you with me today. Glad to be on. Big fan of Restitutio. Cool, cool. Uh, so let's start from the beginning. How did you become a Christian? Were you raised in a Christian home? I was. I was raised in a very loving Christian environment. Um, I grew up attending uh, fellowships with the Way International. In some sense, I guess you could say I was born into it. And uh, my dad, uh, he started reading the Bible in his teens. He didn't really attend church uh, growing up much. But he started reading the Bible uh, in his teens. And, and by the time he was going to college, he, he'd sort of figured the Trinity thing out. He'd sort of figured out that Jesus Christ wasn't God. And so he was, I would say, somewhat looking for, for something. Uh, but he's, he's a very laid back kind of guy. My mom, uh, she grew up Roman Catholic. Uh, she was very hungry for God by the time she went to college. Uh, she wanted to see more of his love and his power. And so they met pretty early on at the University of Kansas. And at that time, the University of Kansas was a big place for people to get into the Way International. And um, around the time they were introduced to each other, a bunch of their friends were uh, made the decision to take uh, Powerful Abundant Living, PFAL. And so they took PFAL in the winter of 73. And then they were married in May uh, of 73. And my dad kept attending Way Fellowships, and my mom didn't. Um, it took her some time, growing up Roman Catholic, to work herself through the Trinity piece, which I'm thankful to say eventually she did successfully. So she, she started attending Way Fellowships again right after I was born. So, so I grew up attending Way Fellowship. And, uh, and where were you growing up? All over the place, Sean. I, I was born in Kansas, and we moved to Missouri for a couple of years, and then Toledo, Ohio. And then we were going to go WOW, I think it was in 94. Um, it was the last year of the WOW program, and it ended up getting canceled. And so we had sold our home and packed up everything, and we were ready to, to go. And so we... And how old were you back then in 94? I was... Eight, almost nine. All right, so you're just going with the flow. You're a kid. That's right. Yep. Period. I'm just, I'm just following along. Yep. All right. Well, for the audience members who maybe aren't familiar with your background or my background, how would you describe the Way International? Like, what is mm -hmm. the Way? Uh, because I know that probably a lot of people would just say, well, that's it's a denomination. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think way people would like to be called a denomination. So maybe you could just describe that as well as describe. PFAL is and the WOW program, yep. those three things. Absolutely. Yeah, so the Way is a non-denominational church, 
and they're very proud of calling themselves non-denominational. And it, like you said, if, if, if you were to call them a denomination, they'll say, no, 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 we're, we're not a denominational church. We're, we're not. Them's fighting words. That's right. Exactly. They, uh, they, they wouldn't, they don't like that very much, but in, in some sense, like you said, they, they have a, a, well, I would say they have a very well-defined at this point, a very well-defined doctrine and they have a history and traditions that they uphold like any other church. Um, and so I think, I think it's fair to call them, um, you know, a non-denominational church with a, with a, a robust set of traditions. So whatever you make of that, uh, PFAL was a class, Powerful Abundant Living was a class that was offered by Victor Paul Werwolf starting, um, I believe, in the late 50s, early 60s. It was eventually taped from what I've, I've heard and what I've read about even uh, in recent years. You know, millions of people have taken that class through the history of that class being offered. And um, it, it was designed essentially as a crash course on how to read and understand the Bible. The way, uh, historically speaking, considers itself a research, teaching, and fellowship ministry and I would say there was a time when that was absolutely true, that there was a lot of research going on along with the teaching and the fellowship. And I would say that since Victor Paul Warwell's death in 85, there's not been nearly as much research as there has been teaching and fellowship. Um, and that will get, I think, fully explained in my story. Sure. Uh, and then the WOW program was um, designed, it's Word Over the World Ambassadors program, and it was designed as a missionary program, um, much like other churches do, uh, like the Mormon Church, for example, they send out missionaries. Um, and so the WOW program was designed to be a, a year-long intensive uh, missionary program, community outreach, essentially church planting. Um, the goal was you take a concentrated group of, of people and you have them live together and you have them read the Bible every day and, and, and go out and, and witness to people every day with the intent of them attending, you know, getting people to attend away fellowship to the point of taking PFAL. And it usually culminated in, you know, set one or multiple classes being run in a given year. And that's more or less how success was defined. I mean, you know, the way it says it's not about numbers, uh, but, but it, you know, just like with every church, there's bills to pay and there's things that have to have to be done. So... Sure. So ultimately, there is a bottom line involved in the in the back of the mind. Mm-hmm. So moving forward, I mean, because I I kind of had a, a very similar background to you, except I don't I don't remember exactly how old I was. Maybe it was eight, maybe a little younger. Maybe I was more like what what, what year did you say Victor World died? Eighty five. Eighty five. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess I would have been six then. So I was a little kid when my my parents ended up leaving the way. Uh, probably between six and eight years old. I'm not sure exactly. Uh, when you're a kid, you're just going with the flow. I mean, what, what do you know? You know that, hey, we have church in our home. We sing these right. songs, and we all read the King James Version. And, That's uh, right, exactly. We all look up yeah. to this figure named Dr. Werewolf, and uh, that's what you know as a kid. It's pretty simple. Now, going yeah. forward from there, uh, essentially my, my group back in the, I guess, mid to late 80s, then started to diverge from Mm -hmm. Way International teaching, and we changed a lot of our beliefs over time, especially in the 90s, uh, especially in the mid and late 90s. And um, we have some things that are the same as far as ethos and a couple of beliefs that we felt stood the test of time and criticism and biblical inquiry, and then uh, others that, that haven't. So 
but that's not at all really your experience. You're you mm-hmm. you continued on and grew that's up right. in your teen years in the way environment, right? That's exactly right. Right. Yep. So so what was that like for you? Was it very nurturing and uh, great, or was it oppressive and difficult, or what was your what was it like for you? Yeah, you know, my wife grew up on staff, and so you know we share stories and, and her recollections of things, especially in the '90s were very different than my recollections of things. You know, some of my earliest memories are like playing basketball on the back porch, little tykes hoop. And I would try to enlist the adults in our fellowship to play with me. And oftentimes they, you know, they would, you know, and, you know, so I grew up really in a, in a very nurturing environment and, and many of the leaders that I knew and the people that I interacted with on a regular basis were just very loving, supportive people. And, you know, from a doctrinal perspective, I think, um, one of the things that, that really has meant a lot to me personally is, um, you know, my dad used to sit us down when we were kids and he, he would say stuff like, you know, I don't care who's talking about the Bible, whether it's someone in fellowship or someone at, at the church down the street, you know, you check what they're saying with the Bible. Oh, wow. And, and so that was my dad's stance on things. And, you know, I, looking back at the period of time he sat me down, I'm, I'm sure there was some stuff being said, um, you know, in Sunday teaching services at the way that were pretty, pretty wild. And, uh, and so maybe that was in the back of his mind as he was saying this to us. But I think just in, in general, that principle has, has stuck with me. Um, and so I think in some sense, you know, having come to the restorationist movement later in life, I sort of feel like I, that's where I belonged the whole time. <laughs> it's just interesting. Yeah, I, I was sort of in the way trying to figure things out for, for a lot of my life. Cool. You continued growing up and you yep. were in the way core. Is that true? That is true. Yep. So I, I, I'll back up for just a second. You know, I, I took all the, the ways classes that they offered, you know, the foundational class, intermediate class. I was always, you know, taking the classes. I was always reading the materials and, and doing the things I was supposed to do, which essentially means reading the books that uh, Victor Paul Worrell wrote. And when I turned 16, that was the earliest you could take the advanced class. I took the advanced class the summer after I turned 16. Before we went to the advanced class, we had to do all these home studies. We had to do all these things to prepare, make sure that, you know, we had covered all of our bases. And, and so I, I dutifully went through all those things and, and enjoyed it. I enjoyed learning and, and wanted to know more about God and more about the Bible. And I remember at the advanced class at age 16, I really at that point, that was the moment when I felt the call of God for me to serve his people. You know, of course, at that time, I interpreted that call to be a call to the Waycore specifically. And, and, you know, different people go through that calling experience in different ways. You know, for me, it was just a realization that nothing in life, I, I just sort of rationally decided that nothing in life is more important than helping people understand, love, and serve God. And, and so when I got to that point, when I made when that sort of realization rationally seeped into my, to my mind, it was just like, well, I'm just, I'm going to go away court. That's just it, you know? And so at 16, my heart was set. That was, that was my goal. That was my dream. And I spent, you know, so much of my uh, adult life leading, leading to that point. And what is the way core? The way core is um, the leadership training program that the way utilizes. Uh, there's some unique things about the Wake Corps that's different. You know, most most seminaries uh, will require you to sign a statement of faith before you go in. At least the conservative ones will. 
the liberal ones, you know, they, they don't care as much what you believe or they care that you, they care that you pay the bill. (laughs) That's right. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so I would say the way is, um, it's more than a doctrinal statement. It's, it's, um, it's strict adherence to what the way currently teaches. And, uh, there's also certain things that, you know, do's and don'ts from a behavior, uh, perspective in terms of, you know, being on time to meetings and being sharp and looking like your life is together. And I mean, there's just, there's a whole bunch of things that go, that go into that. And, um, the other thing that's unique about the way core is, is that, uh, if you decide to go into the way core, um, and you also want to be married and have a family, for example, then your spouse also has to be way core. So in my case, um, before I even really dated my, my wife, you know, we met and I was just out of college and she was still in college. And, and we joke that it was, you know, her job interview. And part of that, <laughs> part of that job, the questions I wanted to know, the things that I, I, I wanted to ask her about was, you know, do you want to be way core? And how do you feel about the way? And she said, yes, she wanted to be way core. And she said, I don't think the way is perfect, but I think I can help fix it. And those, that's exactly what I wanted to know. And, you know, I, I'm one of those people that I grew up in the way and had had a, had a overwhelmingly, uh, I'd say, awesome. great experience in my younger years. Um, but even even with that, I knew that there were big problems, both doctrinally and practically in the way, um, even by the time I was fresh out of college and, and hadn't really started serving in any leadership capacity at that point. All right. Well, let's come back to that. What So what was your experience in the way Corps? Did you graduate? How many years were you in it? Yeah. Yeah, so the Wake Corps is a four-year program. The, the first year is a candidate year, and it's designed uh, for you to work with the leadership locally uh, in your home environment. And it's basically designed to help you uh, get to the point where they feel like you're mature enough to handle the training, and uh, you've checked off enough of the checkboxes, and, and it's you know stuff like can they lead a meeting, and can they teach, and uh, can they you know move the word, can they get people in the word, can they run classes, all the little checkboxes that you, you can think of in terms of administering an organization. Um, and then you have to be out of debt, uh, any kind of debt, credit card debt, uh, student debt, medical debt, what's, you know, no debt whatsoever, not even a mortgage. Or college um, debt? No college debt, nothing, no. And, you know, I know people have, have hidden things or tried to hide things, and some of them may have gotten away with it at times, but, um, you know, we were, we, were, we were up front and honest, we were out of debt, so... Um, so we, you know, we, we got through that year in Atlanta. We, we completed our first year. And then the second year is a missionary year. You go out and, um, you do the way disciple program and the way disciple is a six month version of wow. Essentially they, they cut it in half and, um, we were on a team of 12 young people. Um, and we went to, uh, a suburb of Detroit, Michigan, and we ran a foundational class. So we, we were successful and, and, um, you know, it was a, it was really, it was a challenging experience, but it was a very rewarding one. Um, we, we met some wonderful people along, uh, along our time in, in Detroit, and I think we impacted some people positively. And so that was, that was, it was, like I said, very difficult, but rewarding. And then there are two years that they call the in-residence years. And those are essentially, you're, you're at the Ways campus, mostly in Ohio, and you're cloistered away. Um, taking classes and 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 doing all sorts of extracurriculars, uh, working out and tending a, a garden and all these other things that they think are important to to training. 
And we completed about a year and a half of our in-residence training. So we, we were three and a half years years in uh, before we were dismissed from the Wake Corps. Wow. You got dismissed. That's correct. Yeah. Man. Uh, well, before we get into why you were dismissed, let me mm-hmm. let me return to the question of when did you start perceiving some issues with the way um, right. uh, as you were going through all this? Right. So like I mentioned, my dad sort of said in the back of my mind always, you know, take everything back to the Bible. And so when I was in college, um, and really no one knew this uh, when it was going on, but I had what I call now a crisis of faith. And what I mean by that is I went back, um, I started realizing in conversations with other people around me that, you know, there are things that the way taught that were very different. And I already knew that the Trinity was controversial. I knew, um, I knew that there were other things that, that, um, that the way taught that may be controversial, but I hadn't, I hadn't looked into a lot of it. And I'll tell you, one of the moments that really led to me having this crisis of faith was I was a freshman in college and my first serious girlfriend uh, was an Eastern Orthodox, and she said to me, you know, why do you not believe that Jesus is God? And I said, you know, well, I, you know, there's this verse and that verse and this verse and that verse. And she said, well, what about John 1, 1? And I said, let me open up this book and see if I can read this chapter out loud to you. So I literally read this chapter out loud from Jesus Christ is Not God, written by Victor Paul Worrell. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, this is, this is crazy. Like, who... Who could believe that this adequately answers the question of how we read John 1.1? 1, 1? And, and I was like, oh, man, I got to do better than this. And so, you know, long story short, I didn't end up staying with that girlfriend after much, much after that. But, uh, l- let me just ask a, a quick uh, timeline question just to, yeah. to clarify. So you went to regular college before you went to the Waycore Seminary. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And so you're, what, what school did you go to? I went to Vanderbilt University in Nashville. Vanderbilt, and what'd you study there? I was a math and physics major. Math and physics. So you have your bachelor's in that. That's right. Okay, so you're you're at Vanderbilt or Vandy as they call it, and Vandy, that's right. uh, the there you're studying there, and so you're like you're amped up to go into ministry, right? That's yep. still very much that's part of that. your thinking, but yep. the way the way. Uh, handles clergy is they have you w- support yourself. Is that true? Or why, why were you going to a regular college and not just straight to the WACOR? Many of the WACOR ministers throughout the United States and probably the world as well, uh, many of them work their own jobs. They, they work secularly. They're not supported in a full-time capacity. Um, so that was one reason why I went to college and, and wanted to get you know a, a degree. Um, the other reason was because... Um, I realized that one of the ways I thought I could serve God was by writing and by teaching people. And I had an aptitude for, for math and, and for physics. And I was already interested in the study of apologetics, although I didn't know what it was called at the time. And so that really drove me to study physics was to understand more about uh, creation and, and how I could understand it in relation to the Bible and, and that sort of thing. Um, I didn't. I never really saw myself going into a PhD program and being a professional physicist, but but I did know I wanted to get a degree, and I knew that a degree in math and physics I could do a number of things coming out, and and I've proven that by eventually becoming an actuary <laughs> after teaching math for a period of time too. So, but yes, I was 19 at, or yeah 19 at the time. I was having this conversation with my my girlfriend in my dorm room, slogging through John one. 
<laughs> yeah, and so what what came of that after you realized that the the holy textbook of uh, Jesus Christ is not God uh, didn't have maybe the best explanation on that verse? What where did that leave you? Well, so essentially, I stripped my my faith down to I believe in God and I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in other words, I I wasn't going to go study Buddhism for an extended period of time or Islam. Um, or, and I, and I really already at that point had, had experienced enough of God to know that he existed. Um, but I, I really just was like, okay, I believe in God, the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if it's, a, if they're a Trinity, if they're co-equal, co-eternal, if Jesus preexisted, you know, I don't know any of these things. I'm, I'm going to go to, to the, to the Bible. And so that's what I did. I, I, I really intensely studied the gospels and, and other sections, especially the new Testament. Um, I started reading a number. I reached out to a couple of friends, and I started reading everything I could get my hands on. Uh, I read both Buzzard books. I read Brian Holt's book. I read Patrick a lot of Patrick Novice's book. Um, I read some of the Church Fathers. I read Rubenstein's When Jesus Became God. Classic. You know, and I, right, exactly. And I read excerpts from a number of other you know articles, and I read Trinitarian sources too. And I listened to Trinitarian, you know, famous Trinitarian teachings. Um, I've, I've listened to Walter Martin on multiple occasions. Uh, I wish I, you know, I wish I had the Trinity's podcast back in the day, you know, but that was before Dale Tuggy's podcast. That's right. Yeah. I wish I had, I wish I had Dale riding shotgun in my, my journey, but I, um, thankful to know him now, thankful to have those resources now. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's where what I did is I, I attacked it very, uh, robustly. And out of that actually came a manuscript that I wrote, um, shortly after I graduated college, I've still what was it called? On it. It's called the only true God. Ah, um, John seventeen three. That's right. Yeah. So, I and and that ultimately is one of the reasons I got in trouble <laughs> because I tried to submit that manuscript through the the ways process of doing research, uh-huh. and essentially my leadership in in Arkansas at the time. Uh, he said he wasn't really capable of handling the Greek and the stu- other stuff. He wasn't much of a scholar. And he said, you know, I don't think, I think there's some good stuff here, but I don't think the time for this has come yet. And so I actually sent it to a personal friend, a former fellowship coordinator, about a year later. And he decided to hand it off to the Ohio State coordinator, who's also what the way calls a region coordinator, overseeing multiple states at that time. He was also, incidentally, the minister who officiated my wedding. And so I got a phone call from him saying, why did you send this manuscript to, you know, your old fellowship coordinator? And I said, because he's a family friend, I thought he'd enjoy reading it, you know? And he was like, well, that's not how we do things in the way. And I was like, okay. He's like, you should have sent this to me. And I said, um, okay. I mean, do you want to look at it? He's like, no, I'm going to send it to your branch coordinator first, then we can talk about it. And, um, so why why was he mad? He was mad because you sent it to somebody in Ohio, not somebody in Arkansas. No, at that time I was living in Ohio, so you know protocol would have been for me not to send it to anybody, just send it through the leadership channels, which is what I had tried in, in Arkansas and hadn't worked. That's why I told him is. All right, so he he was mad that instead of you sending it to your fellowship coordinator, you sent it to the regional coordinator. No, directly. No, he he was mad that I sent it to a friend, a, which was a former fellowship coordinator of mine. Instead of sending oh. it to him or to my branch coordinator, my most immediate leadership. So okay. I wasn't following way That's protocol. kind of weird. No, it is absolutely weird. He also, <laughs> more or less, and I'm not trying to disparage this gentleman because I have, again, a lot of positive experiences with him in my life, but 
He also essentially yelled at me for about an hour because he thought I was being arrogant for thinking I was better than Dr. Werwolf, which is a typical thing that I've seen in the way um, having produced research that contradicts or uh, tries to improve upon the current teachings. Yeah, I, I would argue that that's exactly the wrong mindset to have. I hope, as a father, I hope that my children are far superior to me. Absolutely. And that they, their understanding of the world and of God and of, of the faith, you know, first of all, I hope that they choose those things once they're at that age where they're able to make those decisions on their own, but that they would far surpass me. And I, I would hope that Victor Wirrell would have wanted people to surpass him as well mm-hmm. and not just to toe the line. Absolutely. You know, uh, and I think that's a much more noble aspiration than preserving this this one understanding that can never change i mean that's so catholic absolutely no no offense to any catholic listeners out there but like the the whole idea of having a deposit of faith that can never change because you know the council has spoken or the pope has spoken that's not a protestant mindset at all absolutely not so that's that's really interesting yeah Uh, keep going yeah you know i think again to your point in the context of being you know self-proclaiming that you're a research teaching and fellowship ministry you know i think that was the hard part for me is is i was always sort of led to believe that look if you if you've got a better way of teaching things if you've got a better way of understanding things then you know bring that forward and we'll 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 look at it we'll see if we can't incorporate it and you know i eventually found out that that was a lie you know, just to put it bluntly. And, you know, I think the the allegation that I always heard about other people who had done similar things was, oh, you know, they they made demands or they they had an ego or, you know, they um, they couldn't wait for the big ship of the way to change its mind. So they just up and left. And, you know, in, in my case, it's it's none of those things. I I've tried to d- deal with things as, as humbly as I can. I've tried to deal with things in the proper protocol especially throughout my later years in the way, once I knew the protocol, because that minister certainly clarified the protocol for me in that conversation. Um, so, so, you know, I just tried to do things the way that the, the way wanted it. And uh, I still ended up getting into trouble later. Wow. So um, let's talk about how things ended up at mm-hmm. the wake or... Right. Why, why did you get dismissed? And tell me that story a little bit. Sure. So, you know, it's just like any school. You don't want to be in the principal's office, generally speaking. You know, that's, that's not where you want to be. You know, the WACOR coordinator is essentially the principal. He's He or she, usually it's a married couple. They're the core coordinators. They oversee that, that training program. And, and if you're called into their office, you know, usually it's for positive things. It's, hey, can you help me with this research assignment? Or, you know, hey, can you help identify what's going on with so-and-so and, and, you know, let's get a resolution on this. And, and, you know, usually it was for good reasons I was called into the core coordinator's office. There were two times in my training where it wasn't. And um, the second one is the one that you're interested in. And, and that's the one my buddy. So I had a very close friend during this whole time. We were in the same year in residence and we, we had studied the Bible a lot together uh, over the year and a half that we were there together. And, uh, he and I were called into our core coordinator's office, and the allegation was that we were gossiping about the things that were wrong about the way's teachings uh, in the breaks in between classes. And, you know, the thing about that allegation is sometimes we did. 
uh, talk about things that were we thought were wrong with what the way currently you know was teaching or taught in that particular class. So that that part was true. We we never really made fun of things, and if we did make fun of things, it was sort of one of those things, laugh because you want to cry kind of things, because it, it hurt us. You know we. You know, we had the heart that we wanted to present the, the, only the best information. And if we thought something was lacking and that people were, were going along with it, um, then that's a sad thought, you know. And so it was never a holier-than-thou kind of laughter. It was just sort of a, oh, man, look, this is just not right, you know. But that particular uh, incident, the, the laughter was because my buddy was researching something that was somewhat controversial, which uh, was what Jesus Christ is up to. That was essentially his research paper for his Wake War, you know, his final paper for, uh, for the Wake War. Is that Jesus' current heavenly ministry? Is that what you're talking it, about? It was, he was trying to figure out just anything related to what Jesus was, was up to and, and involved with, because the, the current way teaching on that is that essentially they don't talk about Jesus as doing anything currently, He's he's waiting to right, come back. Right, that's what I know? was. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was referring to. Yeah, he's, so he's, he's he's looking into what is Jesus currently doing in heaven. Right. What is his role? Right. Exactly. You know, it, how is he? You know, how is he's looking at Ephesians and saying, look, he's he's the source of supply here. He's, you know, he's looking at Colossians and, and he's saying, look, you know, got to be connected to the head. And he's asking the question. I think the right questions. Even at the time, I thought these were the right questions. What you know, what are, how do we understand what Jesus is doing and how he's impacting the church? And that, you know, that's a very controversial, was a very controversial subject in the way, it still is to this day in the way, this is about five years ago now. So we had been listening to a class, and that morning in class, um, Dr. World, I think it was, was, we were listening to an old tape, he had said something that corroborated a lot of what my buddy was finding. And so that's what we were laughing about. We were laughing about, look, these guys aren't even listening to what, the mentor, the teacher said in class, you know, they're not even listening to everything that he wrote because there were things that he wrote about that would be controversial in the current ways, understanding of things. Um, and so that's what we were laughing about. We we're laughing at the irony of the fact that what he was studying shouldn't even be controversial uh, at all to begin with. And, and they, they heard you laughing or saw you laughing and they, rebuked you for that they didn't rebuke us they went to our core coordinator behind our back and said we think will and his buddy are doing evil things you need to check in on them and he believed it so he called us in the office and we explained when we explained to our core coordinator what happened he understood and he said okay don't talk to each other after class period so that was that was the thing for us to resolve the situation it was the whole, like, go to your own room, <laughs> you know, you kids, you're causing trouble for everyone else, go to your own room. And, you know, that had happened to us before. We, you know, we had, we'd had similar problems in our first year at the very beginning. And, you know, it's just, it's just people letting their minds run and, um, and not having the guts to come talk to us about what we were really talking about. And I really wish they'd come and talk to us, but that's not how it went down. All right. So then what happened next? So then, you know, I was ready to leave the meeting because I, I didn't, you know, like I said, I don't like being in the principal's office, don't like being in trouble. I'm, I try to stay in between the lines generally. And my buddy wasn't as much like that. And so he said, well, he said to the corporate coordinator, well, you know, um, we have things that we have feedback on 
uh, about like the foundational class and other things, you know, we'd like to talk to you about those things. And, and this particular core coordinator was a brand new core coordinator. He had just gotten the job. He was in our generation. So he's, he was only a couple years older than me. Um, and I had had a previous relationship with him because I knew his dad very well. So, you know, we felt, and, and so did my buddy. Um, and so we felt comfortable going to him and saying, look, these are the things that we're seeing. You know, are we crazy or not? You know, just having a private conversation, not trying to change anything officially, not trying to uh, rile anyone else up. You know, we kept this between the two of us, and then we wanted to loop him in and, and get his opinion on things. And so he said, sure, you know, write down the things that you think we could improve on, and I'd love to have that conversation with you. And so what that ended up with was a 10-page, about 100-bullet-point <laughs> feedback on the foundational class. And your chuckle says it all. I mean, how do you think that's going to be uh, received, right? I mean, <laughs> and most of it was ticky stuff. It was, um, uh, maybe we can explain John 1 better. Maybe we can explain Colossians 1 better. You know, it was all bullet-pointed. Um, there was no, I wasn't trying to, it wasn't a manifesto, you know. It was, it was simple, simple, basic stuff. And it was meant to be the beginning of a conversation between the two of us who had been talking about some of this stuff and then our way core coordinator that we wanted to loop in. And so we sent it uh, via confidential memo. And I wanted to read to you uh, sure. the, the memo that we sent. This is the text on the memo that we sent. And this is a, a totally way, way of doing this. Uh, God bless you. Please see the attached information. This is not meant to be hypercritical. These are ideas that we believe would help us solidify an already life-changing class and help move the word even better. The material presented in this document is by no means a polished presentation of the information. We would love to discuss any of these points at your convenience. We have not and will not share this information with anyone else. Thank you for taking the time to review these items. So that was placed in a confidential box for our Wakecore coordinator's eyes only. And you know we promised to abide by all the standards that the way would have regarding research. And you know the main thing that they're concerned about is that you don't, the rotten apples don't spoil the whole bunch, right? <laughs> so we, we said, look, we're not going to share this with anyone else. It seems like there's just a, a heck of a lot of control issues going on here. Yes, yep, absolutely. I wonder what they're so afraid of, because usually fear is what drives control. Absolutely. No, and, and I think the, the response to this, I think you'll see fear on a couple different people's parts. Because we sent that, I believe it was on a Monday morning, we turned that in. Um, and then we heard nothing for, for three days. Then on Thursday, I was, we were pulled out of our block assignments. And block assignments during the wake or in the morning typically you have class. In the afternoon you work a job at the way. And it could be in grounds where you cut the grass and, and rake leaves and all that kind of stuff. It could be uh, in the auditorium cleaning brass or vacuuming or working on stage or set design. It could be in any of the office departments doing different things. Uh, my wife and I, we were pulled from our block assignments for a meeting with our core coordinators, both the husband and the wife. And essentially it was a um, 45-minute long conversation where they accused me of all sorts of wild and, and crazy things. Uh, one of the things that they said is I couldn't, I couldn't possibly 
be able to run a foundational class knowing this information. And the ironic thing is I had just finished running the foundational class for the staff children about three months prior to this, and everyone on staff thought it was an overwhelmingly successful foundational class. And so that's why I pointed to it. I said, look, I ran that foundational class. I've run all sorts of foundational classes before. I've had these, a lot of these questions the whole time. Have you ever heard anyone say that I've taught any of this publicly? And the answer was no. And so... Now, uh, just, just to clarify for folks, uh, the foundational class is the same thing as the PFAL, right? It's a new version of the PFAL. Yeah, it was okay. taught by Craig originally. Craig Martindale? Craig Martindale. Okay. He, he taped a copy in the 90s, and they retaped it in the early 2000s with new teachers. Uh, so to run a foundational class means to uh, to play out some tapes of Craig Martindale teaching? That's that's correct. Well, th- 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 this was no longer Craig teaching. This was the new new roster of teachers. Uh, oh, okay. So these are... From 2000s, right. Right, but it's not you actually teaching the material. No. You're... Facilit- you're like a classroom facilitator. That's right. Yep. I go up at so, the beginning and I say a couple of cool things or you know inspirational things and maybe lead a couple of songs where we might have the, what, what the way calls the worship manifestations and then we roll into the tape and then we send them to a break and then we come out of the break and we play another tape and usually the tape the the length is somewhere between 45 minutes and an hour each session. Okay. All right. Thanks. I just wanted to clarify that for folks. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the point was, is I had done what he was accusing me of not able, being able to do. I had done it many times and had done it in, in the WACOR program under core coordinator supervision for staff kids in the last three months. So clearly the allegations were false. The interesting thing about that meeting is, is Sean, if you had been a fly on the wall, you would have said, Will, why are you not speaking up for yourself? I just fold like a cheap tent because I, I didn't want to come across as the last thing I wanted to do was be egotistical or um, or act like I wasn't meek. And at one point, the core coordinator said something about me. He alleged something. And my wife turned to me and, he, and she said, you know, are you are you really guilty of this? And I said, no, I'm not. I, I didn't feel the need to defend myself very vigorously. I just felt my record stood from, for, for itself. And that's why I tried to bring him back to. And what was interesting is at the end of the conversation, I said, I just asked him, I said, well, do you disagree with what I wrote? You know, is there something that we can talk about proactively from the Bible? You know, is there, is there a way we can, you know, is there something that I'm way off base on? And he said, no, I think, I, I think I've thought about half these things before. And I was like, well, why are we? Why are we doing this big old song and dance? What is the point of this meeting? Right. And what I found out later is, and you know, I don't, I don't know what actually happened, Sean. I'm going to be honest with you, but, but the only thing I can think of is that he saw how thick the document was, how how many bullet points there were. He got scared and he reached out to to uh, Reverend Rosalie Ryanbark, and and I think I think she's the one who instructed him what to do because it was totally out of character what he did. What my corporate did, and uh, Rosalie is the current president of the Way International. She was the president and the chairman of the board at that time. At that, I don't time. think she okay. holds the president title anymore. I think she's a vice president or something now. She she has stepped down somewhat. Uh, I say somewhat. Um, I think I think she's still essentially running everything. Okay. At, at the end of this meeting, you got dismissed no, from the way court, no, or you were still in it, but just it. severely chastised and muzzled. <laughs> no, not even that. Uh, my core coordinator said that he thought our hearts were clear. 
I asked him what he was going to recommend to to Reverend Ravenbark, and he said, we're going to recommend that you stay. And I said, great. And I said, look, I'd still love to talk about these points, and, and if there's anything that I'm wrong about, I want to know as soon as possible. I want to have that conversation with you. And so uh, I thought everything was good, and uh, everything was not good. Um, the, the next day, Friday, I was called back into my core coordinator's office, and I was told that the board of directors had made the decision that, that I was no longer fit, that we were no longer fit to be WACOR, and that we were being dismissed immediately, and that we had 24 hours to pack up all of our stuff and to get off of grounds, and that they would be assigning our, uh, some other WACOR, in-residence WACOR, to help us pack and make our arrangements. Wow, so you got canned. That's correct. And was there any recourse with that? Well, we tried, Sean. We tried. Um, you know, obviously, we thought it was essentially a misunderstanding. And um, one of the details that I haven't mentioned at this point is that my father-in-law at that time was a high-ranking minister at the Way, and he was um, located at what Way calls headquarters, which is where we were being trained. That's the main property that the Way owns in New, New Knoxville, Ohio. And um, so my father-in-law, who was high-ranking minister, a very avid researcher, I'd had many conversations with him on, on a number of the items that I brought up in my feedback in, in years before, and, and he thought some of them had some merit to them and, and should be discussed. He thought that it was all a, uh, just a, a mistake, that there was just, it was just a miscommunication. So he immediately reached out to Rosalie directly and said, you know, look, you don't know Will like I do. I'm, I'm his father-in-law. Trust me, he's he's meek. He'll listen. Um, he's not going to go spreading stuff around. He's not going to handle this disrespectfully or out of protocol. You know, please don't dismiss him. Give him a chance to defend himself. And she refused. She refused to meet with, with, with us. And she said instead that we should write her. And so that's what we did. We ended up uh, writing her a letter. And I uh, actually ended up apologizing <laughs> to her uh, because that's what you're apologizing for getting fired. That's right. Exactly. That's because that's the, the way, again, that's the protocol in the way. Yeah. That's, that's not a healthy, that's not a healthy environment, man. No, no. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's like they're abusing you and then you're apologizing for their abuse of you. That's correct. You know, and, and to be honest, a seminary, really should be the kind of place where young people that are forming their thinking can push back. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a tremendously creative time in your life when you're at university, whatever subject it is you're studying. Absolutely. You know, I mean, could you imagine in physics that, let's say you had a hypothesis that challenged Einstein, Okay. Now, your professor would, would come in there and, and, you know, let's say you handed in an assignment and that's what you did. The professor would then have to evaluate it based on its own merits. They can't just say, oh, you're Will Barlow. You can't challenge Einstein. Look, if, in real science, which, you know, the Latin of, of which is the, just the word for knowledge, in a real pursuit of knowledge, th this whole idea of the fame of the person doesn't have relevance. Absolutely. I don't know how else to say that. No, absolutely. No, <laughs> but uh, so I think you should be able to challenge things. And I think when it comes to theology, it should be the same thing. You know, there are boundaries, right? right? Because if you're not, not going to consider the Bible as authoritative and inspired, 
then you're just not doing the same kind of thing as what that seminary is doing, right? Absolutely. If it's not if it's a Bible-based seminary and you're and you're just doing documentary hypothesis and slicing and dicing the scriptures into a hundred different authors and redactors and stuff. Okay, well, you're just really at the wrong seminary for that. But within the boundaries right. of, and there are plenty of seminaries you can go to that'll do that. Right. But within the boundaries of what you're doing, you know, you weren't challenging the Christology. Mm-hmm. You were tra- you were challenging the explanation of the text. You were actually agreeing with the Christology, and in fact, you were you were presenting a better understanding that could help more people continue to believe in that Christology. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So, yeah. And you, again, you read the text in my memo and, you know, we were over the top on, on saying stuff like, look, this is already a life changing class. We're just trying to help make things better. And so I think that there was a lot of fear, uh, both on my core coordinator's part and sort of escalating that directly to Rosalie. And I think honestly, there was a lot of fear on Rosalie's part because she didn't want to adjudicate current way teachings with the Bible she wanted to canonize Victor Paul Werwell's teachings and act like there's nothing wrong with them. And I, I, I would have had a problem with that had I known that before I went in the WACOR, much less while I'm in the WACOR. Because I just don't think you can call yourself a research ministry if you canonize a set of works and you said, we're not going to question the contents of these works. All right, so you got basically dismissed from the WACOR Yes. What happened next for you? Because so, I, I heard from Jerry that you wrote some sort of paper with uh, the, the whole question of believing equals receiving, mm-hmm. which uh, which came up later. Is that where this fits in, or is that something else that happens next? I had written, I've written a couple different a couple different things, and I've, I've challenged a couple different wave wave doctrines. Some some more publicly than others. Um, I mentioned to you the training manuscript that's unpublished that. Eventually, we'll get back to at some point, possibly, and, and and continue working on. But I think it should be crowdsourced. I think I think it should be a lot of people working on something like that. Um, I did eventually publish a book on um, apologetics called "God and Science: Is Faith in God Rational?" It goes through uh, different branches of science and how they relate to the Bible. But you know, right after we were dismissed. We still attended Away Fellowship, believe it or not, for about a, uh, a year and a half. And a lot of that was I grew up, my parents are in it, my brothers are in it, their wives are in it. Uh, my wife's parents were high-ranking ministers in the way. We were trying to, to keep everyone not necessarily happy, but it was just we thought at the time the most gracious thing to do was just to continue attending Away Fellowship. And and we slowly, I continued studying the, the Bible and started seeing some holes in, in a couple different things. Uh, the, the, the biggest one, besides my 10-page document that was controversial, was my core thesis was on the tithe, actually. Um, it was on financial giving in the church, and I have a, a, an article series on that on my website. And essentially what I, what I argue in that is that um, the tithe is a very specific thing that they did in the Old Testament to give 10% of crops or animals to the temple, and therefore the strictness of the tithe, and even even we should be careful in the, in the church how we use the term tithe, uh, because what it literally was was an offering in the temple. And there are even modern Jews, for example, that'll say stuff like, you know, oh, we don't tithe anymore because there's no temple and we're not growing these goods in Israel and that, and that sort of thing. Um, that kind of thinking was also 
the opposite of what, what Victor Paul Werwell taught in his pamphlet, Christians Should Be Prosperous. And so on the way out, beyond just the 10-page paper I wrote, they were also kicking on my research paper um, on, on financial giving. Um, and so that was, that was the other big thing that, um, that got me in trouble. Wow. So what happened next? So we attended Way Fellowship for, like I said, about a year and a half. And then um, uh, I had just started my website and had published my book. And I knew that was going to put increasing pressure. Um, you know, I was going to get increasing pressure from the way. And I was sort of waiting to see what that was going to be. Um, and eventually what it, how, how it manifested itself was the branch, our branch coordinator, local area coordinator, who is also the state coordinator of the state of Kentucky, um, came up to us after a branch meeting and essentially yelled at us um, in front of our small child. And, um, and I did not back down from that conversation like I had with my core coordinator. Um, and I told him what I thought, which was, you know, advancement in the way is based on how much you agree with the teachings of Victor Paul Rural and how much you're okay with the decrees of, of Reverend Reibenbark. And he did not like that. So he invited us to attend his fellowship and said that that was the only fellowship we could attend. Up to that point, we'd been attending my brother's fellowship. And essentially, I could teach whatever I wanted in my brother's fellowship as long as it wasn't controversial. And so I taught a lot of things that were just beyond the scope of things the way currently taught. You know, it was just not against what the way taught, but also new things, things I was interested in um, and things I thought other people would find interesting. Um, And so I certainly wasn't towing the line doctrinally, but I also wasn't breaking protocol. Um, and so, you know, he said that the only thing I could do is I could come attend his fellowship. And I said, well, why do you want us to do that? And he essentially said to control us, to control the impact that we were having on the exactly. religious community. Yeah. And I said that that wasn't unacceptable. And I said, look, we'll think about it. But right now my answer is no. Uh, we, my wife and I talked about it and we just said, this is ridiculous. And at that point, a year and a half had passed, and my father, my father and mother-in-law had had enough time to process things, and they had already decided to retire from the Way Corps. They were old enough to do so. And so they retired here to Louisville, and that summer we started our own Bible study, which we've been running since then. And is that study-driven faith? That, the study-driven faith is the website that I run. Um, it is, it's just a project that, that I've been working on that allows people like me to present information. Um, our, our good friend Jerry Werwell has a couple. I asked him for a couple articles, which he kindly allowed me to post on there. My friend Ryan Tinsley uh, also has some articles and some, some audio teachings up on there. Um, my friend Jeff Gilbert uh, has helped me uh, a lot with with that website. So, and and it's it's the kind of thing where we're we're always open to anyone who wants to to write something or or record an audio teaching or whatever the case might be. We're happy to help people. And look, you don't have to agree <laughs> agree with us. We just want to help take what you're presenting and and make it the best that it can be, and give you a, an outlet to 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 do that. So I do that, and then we do the Wednesday Bible study for for people locally, and we also have a dial-in for that for some friends of ours that are X-Way people that would like a friendly environment for X-Way people, and so that's what we do on Wednesday nights. And so are you X-Way at this point, or are you still in the way, or what's your situation? Well, we've, we've, been, we've been out of the way, thankfully, for, oh, geez, it's almost three years now, officially, 
And is that something that you said, I don't want to be considered way anymore, or that they said, well, if you're not going to our that fellowship you were just talking about, you're not going to come to that, then you're out? Or how, how did it happen? Uh, so, you know, I, I would say it was a, probably a, a mutual decision. <laughs> you know, I, I'm a dangerous commodity to them. And, you know, because I disagree, I've in, in the last three years, I've increasingly disagreed with doc, their doctrinal stances. And, um, and so, you know, they don't want me in a way fellowship uh, teaching things that are different. Not that, again, not that I would break protocol and do that. Um, but, you know, from our perspective, uh, the way has been um, at the highest levels, uh, abusive to us, abusive to our family. Um, I, would, I would say that um, how our WACOR coordinator and how Reverend Reinerbark and how our uh, local ministers uh, after we were dismissed, how those, those three people, sets of people treated us absolutely constitutes abuse. I think that's a fair assessment of the situation. Um, and so I wasn't going to allow my family, my young son, and now my, my young daughter to be raised in that kind of an environment. And, and locally, again, we... Good for you, because <laughs> uh, then they would be subject to that same kind of treatment. Absolutely. And, and the thing is, is locally, they're wonderful people. They're, you know, um, my, my wife had a recent uh, very serious health challenge about a year ago. Uh, many of our friends on Facebook are aware of aware of it, but she had a, a stroke actually, and in the wake of that, um, we had a tremendous outpouring of support from people in the way, out of the way, Christian, non-Christian, Trinitarian, non-Trinitarian, and we were just thankful for all the love and the thoughts and the, and the prayers, and and we're humbled by the response. And um, so, you know, I feel essentially, I feel nothing but love for the people of the way. I think. Many of them are, are wonderful, wonderful people. They're God-fearing people. And I believe that they've been taught some wrong things. And I believe that the, the leadership has been trained to treat people at times incredibly inappropriately. And I really call for them to change that culture um, and change that mindset. And I, I would call for them to bring research back into that ministry and allow people to freely discuss uh, and question things. Um, but I harbor no animosity towards the, you know, the way as a whole or, or the, the, especially the lower level people of the way. Um, you know, we were abused by very specific people who had very specific powers and they had the ability to take our dream away. And that's what they did. And what I learned in that was, is that that wasn't what God called me to do anyway. That wasn't the dream that God put in my heart anyway. And that what I'm doing now, as difficult as it is to not have a full organization behind me, supporting me financially or through putting people in my living room, you know, every Sunday and Wednesday night, you know, whatever the case might be, that God is leading me. The Lord Jesus Christ is leading me. And I have a wonderful extended community of people uh, just like the Restitutio community, just like Living Hope, um, you, you know, your guys' church. Uh, Living Hope, not to not to plug for your own church here, but I've listened to like six or seven of your classes. Um, the free resources that are available just through that ministry alone are, are just are wonderful. And uh, I told your dad at Converge that you know that's how a church should be run, where things are free, they're open to the public, anyone can get on there, download it, do it whatever order they want to do it in. Um, you know, and, and all this information is just accessible. Um, and so I just think it's wonderful what you're doing at Restitutio. I think it's wonderful what you guys are doing at Living, Living Hope. 
Yeah, I think my dad uh, had a lot of similar experiences to what you described here. And uh, the short version of his story is that after Victor Werewolf died, there was a power struggle. And a couple of different guys were vying for the position to take over. And uh, Craig Martindale, who was a close friend of my dad's, sent out this letter saying... He had to give absolute allegiance to him and the board. And my dad said, I I can't do that. And this is ridiculous that you're asking me to do that. My allegiance is to God and his son, Jesus Christ, and to the scriptures. And I can't give absolute allegiance to some fallible human or group of humans. And without any recourse or discussion, they just simply fired Mm. my dad. This is in the mid-80s or late-80s. And, uh, you know, the way the way was structured at that time, it probably still is, uh, my dad didn't own anything. He didn't own his house. He didn't own his car. He didn't own his furniture. Uh, The only possession he had was his bed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they said, all right, you've got two weeks. My dad had five kids. They said to him, you've got two weeks and and you're out of the house. And that's it. And uh, so that was that was his experience with the control and everything else. And uh, looking back on it, he has said to me of that experience that that was, uh, you know, one of the worst experiences and best experiences at the same time. Absolutely. Because, you know, just like you, you know, they took the dream away. They took the carpet right out from underneath them. But at the same time, the local believers, uh, many of them did go with whoever the person is that took over. Right. But many of them did also stay with my dad, and that gave him the freedom as a fellowship coordinator to do what you were saying, which is do the research and start to start to think on his own rather than thinking within the, the very strict confines of what Victor Wirrell had taught previously, however many decades ago that was. So, right. yeah, I kind of grew up in the shadow of that mindset. My, my question to you, Will, would be what about all the – what about all the people that are still in there? I mean, you're not, you're not the only person, man. I, I tell you, I've met, you know, three or four couples over the last two years mm-hmm. who are just like saying the same thing that you're saying right here, mm-hmm. where leadership control, the, these kinds of like bully tactics right. are, are, are basically squeezing them out mm-hmm. where they can't rationalize to themselves staying in. Right. And by and large, people come out of the way and they, they're, it's weird that they're so forgiving mm. of the way sure. <laughs> of the way they were treated, yeah. but they, they are, you know, mm-hmm. it's just like, all right, well, I'm not going to hold it against them. What they did was wrong, mm-hmm. but I got to move on with my life. Right. And, uh, right. you know, I'm sure it's very disorienting to, to come out of that umbrella and then not to have access to mm. certain events that you're used to going to Absolutely. and certain people that don't want to have fellowship with you or even communicate with you. Right. But what about these folks that are still in it right now mm-hmm. at the time of this recording in the year 2020? Mm-hmm. Do you have hopes that studydrivenfaith.org can reach them or yeah. that other ministries can reach them? Or do you have any plans underway to get... I mean, because really, these people are under oppression. Right, right. So how can you help them? Yes. What do you think? So that's that's a lot of the reason why I started Study Driven Faith in the first place was... Um, you know, as I was seeing things in the Bible that wasn't lining up with what the way taught, I thought, well, I can't teach this in, in a way Bible study, but what I can do is I can I can post this stuff online. And, and I'm friends with many, many people that are still in the way. Um, and so uh, I, I post content, post articles, 
and um, also been teaching our local local Bible study things. Um, one of the things that we taught, I think it's almost a year and a half ago now, is we taught a series on the kingdom of God. And I mean, um, you know, you talk about some of the things I've learned since leaving the way. Dispensationalism was one of the first things that went uh, after leaving the way. And once you get rid of that, I mean, once that obstacle is out of your way, there's just, I mean, it just explodes the possibilities. And so I'm going to start a series on, on Seder and Faith on the Kingdom of God. And I, what I would really want to do is I really want to break things down into small pieces and help help people that are currently in the way, especially understand this whole time periods debate. And so, um, you know, let's understand our options with dispensationalism. And then let's go into the kingdom of God and see all the wonderful things that the Bible says about the kingdom of God. And the interesting thing about the way is, is that, you know, there are surprising things that they had correct doctrinally. I mean, of course, the biblical Unitarian piece of it, you know, in the place of Jesus Christ is correctly portrayed in the way. Um, but I'd say by and large, you know, you, you score them 75% or something in that category. They got a lot of it right. You know, and then the whole conditional immortality, soul sleep thing, you know, they've got that right, you know. And so these are people that are hungry for the kingdom of God. And once I presented that information to, like, my parents and my in-laws, even my mom, my mom is not a huge fan of new doctrines. You know, it took her a while to transition on the Trinity. My mom loved our teaching series on the kingdom of God. And so that's what I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful for is that, you know, I've, I've learned dealing with, um, you know, dealing with certain family members of mine and, and certain friends of, of mine, uh, acquaintances of mine that have stayed in the way. You know, I've learned that telling my sob story doesn't get anything done because you can always rationalize it away. Oh, it wasn't as bad as he says it was. Or, you know, Rosalie must have had a good reason for doing what she did. Or, you know, there's, there's some skeleton in his closet that's unaddressed. But if I can bring someone... Uh, something from the Bible that can be verified and that, that, and especially something like the kingdom of God, that's so powerful and uplifting and so clearly biblical, um, you know, that's my entry point into people. Yeah. It might break the spell. Absolutely. And so that's what I'm I'm hoping for is I'm hoping that study driven faith, you know, I I would absolutely say that I I try to tailor uh, my posts towards people who come from a way background because there are already so many wonderful ministries out there like Restitutio that handle general framework so well. And you cover so many things from a doctrinal perspective. Um, and, and so really I see story driven faith as, as having two purposes. One, to specifically try to reach that way community or people who are in the post-way community that don't know what's right and wrong from, you know, they know some stuff is wrong because they know how they're treated. And that leads them to think that there's something wrong with the doctrine, but they don't know what it is. And so I'm trying to provide a service for those people, both in and out of the way. You know, let's challenge our thinking a little bit. And the second thing, like I said earlier, is, you know, let's give anyone an opportunity, young, old, uh, way, not in the way, post-way, whatever the case might be. If you want to write an article, if you want to submit a teaching, you know, we're happy to work with you. And so, you know, maybe maybe at some point this can, we can develop into a baby restitutio where maybe people feel like restitutio is too hoity-toity and, and beyond their abilities or, you know, whatever the case might be. But maybe they can come on Study Driven Faith and start writing articles and get their, get their, cut their teeth a little bit 
and uh, and then produce content, you know, on other sites that that are more advanced. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing about the internet too is that the more sites, the better. Absolutely. You know, and we can all link to each other, and we can all uh, lift each other up. Absolutely. You know, just like a bunch of uh, pieces of wood floating in an ocean, you know, can turn into a raft and then support a human being. Um, so uh, I think it's it's great to have more websites. It's great to have more people engaged. Let me ask you this: Do you think doing this interview will get you in trouble? <laughs> uh, I hope this interview does cross Rosalie's desk. You know, I hope I hope she. <laughs> I wish she would take the time to listen. You know, probably not. <laughs> but I, I I don't. I'm not pretentious. You know, we were never marked and avoided. And I, I know maybe your listeners don't know that term. Well, maybe you can get marked and avoided now. Maybe I can. I don't know. <laughs> let's let's lift my stock high enough where I'm important enough to get marked and avoided, Sean. Let's let's do it with one interview. But oh no, I won't get in trouble for this interview. You know, uh, all my closest friends know where I stand, and and they know what I'm do- doing with Stranger in Faith. And I've got so many people that have supported me, and even even my parents and my in-laws. They don't agree with everything that I've changed doctrinally, but there's uh, a ton of unconditional love and support uh, from them, and um, and and both of them live here in Louisville and attend our Bible study, and so you know we we've we've crossed a lot of bridges as a group. And, you know, we're a tight-knit little, little community here in Louisville. So. That's excellent, excellent. Uh, you say on your site, the founders of Study Driven Faith wanted to provide a safe place for people to discuss matters pertaining to the Christian faith. As such, Study Driven Faith is an open community designed to encourage and strengthen those who want to become more Christ-like day by day. Uh, would you say that that's, that's uh, your, kind of like your vision statement there? I mean, I'm sure this... Uh, a couple of these words here, a safe place, an open community, uh, encouraging research. These are all things that really speak to your experience of being stifled and closed mm-hmm. and having these sort of like uh, Gestapo tactics employed against you, <laughs> right? Uh, so this this has got to speak to folks that are, are looking to sort of like get the monkey off their back and and see see where God can lead them. Absolutely. In, in understanding the scriptures and understanding their beliefs better, right? Absolutely. That's that's our goal. That's our goal is to, to help people not just know more of the Bible, but also be more like Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, I think to do that, you have to have a lot of different things going on. But one of the things that we think Study Driven Faith can provide is, like you said, that open community to discuss matters of doctrine and practice. And so that's what we've endeavored to do. And as, as the time goes on, I hope that that community expands and that more people, um, we don't, you know, we don't have uh, the following that Restitutio has. And, and, you know, we may never have that kind of a following, but we have impacted people and we do have comments from people sharing that impact. And, and, and even if it's one person, you know, I'm, I'm thankful and, and I will, I'll give my Restitutio plug now. But, you know, when I left the way, I felt all this pressure you know, I have all these things I want to present. I have all these things I want people to know. And really soon after that, a friend showed me your, your site, Restitutio, and it literally took all the pressure off of a young man with one small child and eventually another small child on the way that I didn't have to redo the wheel. I didn't have to reinvent the wheel. And there's just so much, so many resources available on, on Restitutio for people that have these kinds of questions. And so I'm just incredibly thankful for that. Well, uh, it's, it certainly is gratifying to see how the work that we do here is able to help people. I, I would love to 
find ways that we could work together or that we could support you. And, and, you know, I think giving, giving you an opportunity to share your story and getting that out to people, uh, will help people find you. Now, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Just go to studydrivenfaith.org or how, how would they get in touch? So there's a couple of ways you can, you can use the email that's on the website. It's administrator at studydrivenfaith.org. Uh, but I'm also happy for people to contact me on my personal email. It's william.a.barlow, B-A-R-L-O-W, at gmail.com. And I'd love to hear from anyone. And, you know, if anyone has a teaching or either written or audio or video, whatever, whatever the case might be, feel free to send it, send it to me. And our, our small team will, will get together and we'll look at it and see if we can't offer some suggestions and we'll get it up there. Yeah, that sounds great. Anything else you'd like to say? I'm just thankful that... Um, that there's this larger biblical Unitarian community out there that we can support one another and that, um, you know, that there's wonderful people like Jerry Werwell that walk between all the camps and, and connect <laughs> all of us together. What a wild guy that is. he is, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he's something else. He's in every group under the sun. He's, you know? the, he's the only person I know of that's, that says and does what he says and does and is still not persona not, not kicked out at the way international no. you know if i showed up there'd be security <laughs> team alerted you know but he shows up and they're like hey jerry how's it going man and i'm like <laughs> jerry and i come on we're, we're like the same guy we're very similar in belief yeah. you know and it's just it's wild but he does it he manages to somehow he's the golden boy he is he is all right well uh thanks for uh thanks for talking with me today i appreciate it thanks for having me sean it means a lot to me well, that's it for this interview. If you want to check out more of Barlow's work, visit studydrivenfaith.org or get in touch with him via email, williamabarlow at gmail.com. And I've got that information in the show notes for this episode on your device or go over to restitutio.org and look for episode 313, Questioning Way International Doctrines, and you'll be able to find the information and links there. I've got some comments in from our last episode, 312, Evaluating Dispensationalism Part 2 with John Truitt. Actually, these comments don't really have to do with dispensationalism or with John Truitt. These comments are mostly comments on my comments at the end of that episode where I was responding to David Seaborn Jones's questions about how do we deal with a number of texts that specify the imminence of the kingdom. And in particular, the one text that a couple of people are commenting on here is the one from Matthew 24, where it says, where Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And I had commented that my take on that is that this generation means this generation that sees these signs uh, taking place, as opposed to the generation standing in front of Jesus in that very discourse. I got this idea from Daryl Bach, uh, to which I will return shortly, but I want to read out a couple of these comments just so you get a feel for what the objections are to this view. Um, Carlos writes, if Jesus had wanted to say that future generation instead of what's recorded, this generation, he would have said so. I think he knew the difference. As many have noted, the better sense is to render yunea, that's the word for generation, in this context as this, this present evil society. 
this present evil age. Uh, let me pause you there, Carlos. I don't see any lexical grounds for that whatsoever. Um, if we look up the word, uh, yenea, definition one in the BDAG, which is the standard Greek New Testament dictionary, is those exhibiting common characteristics or interests, a race or kind. Uh, number two is the sum total of those born at the same time, expanded to include all those living at a given time if, and frequently defined in terms of specific characteristics, and that's the word generation. Number three, the time of a generation, and they use the word age there. So looking at those three main definitions, and the Little Scott Jones uh, uh, Greek lexicon is going to have these same options, uh, we, we have either number one, race, the second option is that it means generation. And the third option is that it means age. There, I don't see any lexical entry for this word where it means this present evil society. Let me continue reading Carlos's comment. Note also Psalm 102.18. This, this will be written for the Yenea to come that a people which will be created may praise the Lord. Yeah, so uh, that backs up the generation hypothesis. Um, I, maybe I'm just not getting what Carlos is saying here. Psalm 102.18 says, this will be written for a generation to come. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, Jesus says this generation. So if you don't like this generation being the generation that sees the initiation of the signs, namely the abomination of desolation, then you are stuck saying that the people standing in front of Jesus, that generation, would not pass away until not only the destruction of the temple, but also the coming of Christ to gather together his elect. So uh, I, I don't see how this, this view is helping. He goes on uh, to quote three dictionaries, three Bible dictionaries. The first is the Dictionary of the Apostolic Church of the Word Unea, Volume 1, which glosses it as this crooked generation. Okay, yeah, well, guess what? That generation has passed away, so I don't see that as helping any. Uh, the dictionary definition is, this crooked generation is the present swiftly transient period of the world's history, which is leading up to the Day of Judgment and the New Age. Let me just interrupt here. So if it's swiftly transient, I don't see how it could still be there hundreds and thousands of years later. Th this doesn't sound to me like a whole multi-millennial period of time. This sounds like a swiftly transient period of the world's history. And indeed, there was a swiftly transient period of the world's history between the time of Jesus and the time of the destruction of the temple. Uh, but the problem is, that we, if we go with that interpretation, we have to have Christ coming back and gathering together the elect, and now we're all full preterists who are living after all of the events of recorded prophecy, and I don't think any of us want to go in that direction. Uh, Carlos also quotes the Dictionary of Christ and the Apostles that Yenea rendered generation does express the current age of the world period is obvious in the Gospels. Uh, well, that's just stating something. It's not, it's not giving any information <laughs> about that. I would need to have more words from this dictionary than just, just one line. Um, you could take this multiple ways. You could take this as saying that uh, that world period that current age uh, did pass away. Uh, or you could say it didn't because Jesus hasn't come back yet, right? Uh, you could look at it either way. So that, that entry is not sufficient evidence to support the hypothesis that this generation means uh, this age of thousands of years. Uh, 
Then he quotes uh, C.E.B. Cranfield, uh, who writes, Yenea is best taken in the sense age, period of time, which is the primary meaning of the Hebrew door, the word it most often represents in the Septuagint and possible meaning of Yenea. The whole phrase is contrasted with when he shall come with his holy angels, so is roughly equivalent to in this time, in 1030, which is contrasted with in the coming age. Uh, I think that supports my position, Carlos. Uh, I'm not sure how that supports your your view on this, that this generation refers to many, many generations uh, as, as opposed to the generation that is either present, hearing Jesus in that moment, or the generation that is present that sees the abomination of desolation occur whenever that will happen. Anthony Buzzard writes in and says, Sean, where have I said this generation refers to this race? I say normally that this is this present age as distinct from the age to come. Uh, well, Anthony, I obviously must have misheard you saying that in light of the, the dictionary definitions. Um, that word, Yunaya, does mean race. Uh, you can look that up for yourself in the BDAG, as I mentioned earlier, or the LSJ. And uh, maybe I, I conflated those two together looking at the dictionaries and hearing you teach on this uh, all those years ago. So please forgive my misremembering uh, your interpretation on that. Uh, I, I obviously got that wrong. And then Ken LaProd writes in a couple of comments as well, which I'm not going to have time to get to for now. But I did want to just lay out all of the options that Daryl Bach gives us in his Baker Exegetical Commentary of the New Testament. It's a very good commentary, uh, two volumes on the book of Luke, uh, which also contains the same phrase. So his first option here is that Yunea refers to the generation of the disciples who are addressed. Uh, and he goes on to say, well, the most obvious objection to this view is that it makes Jesus manifestly wrong, and the church perpetuated this error when it continued to circulate these remarks after the disciples died. If Jesus had really meant this, would not the church have buried such an embarrassing saying or abandoned this hope? The saying's presence suggests that something else is intended. So that would be the view that is held by many preterists, uh, partial preterists, full preterists, depending on how you interpret the part about uh, the sign of the Son of Man coming in the, the clouds. N.T. Wright and others do interpret that as referring to the judgment on Jerusalem by Vespasian and the Titus, the Roman generals, but I think a lot of us find that not very convincing. Uh, Bach continues, attempts to defend this view by arguing that Jesus did come in the form of Jerusalem's destruction do not work, since it is his physical return in total judgment, not an act of judgment or mere rule that is in view. Then number two for the options on interpreting this word is that Luke means his generation rather than that of Jesus. Uh, one's view of the nature of Jesus' prophetic gifts will influence whether this option is persuasive. It is certainly subtler to see Luke speaking of his generation rather than Jesus, but if Yenea refers to contemporaries, then the more natural reference is to Jesus. So that would be uh, option one, Jesus' own generation. Option two, Luke and his generation. Option three is that this refers to AD 70 as the end, that is, as the beginning of the consummation or as the type of the end of the world. 
The advantage of this approach is that it takes most of the terms in the rather direct sense, except for the key reference to God's consummated kingdom. This latter problem makes this approach unlikely unless one reads the point theologically in a prophetically shortened manner. There is no indication that the kingdom changed its nature in any way in A.D. 70 or that the later church recognized this event to be that transformation. Uh, yeah, so if that third option is to argue that the kingdom did in fact come in the year A.D. 70. Uh, number four, another approach takes a lexical ang- angle to argue that Yenea means a given race, namely the Jewish nation. The point is that the Jewish race will not pass away before the end, There is a future for Israel. This interpretation is popular among dispensational interpreters, although not exclusively. Variations on this sense argue that Yunea means the human race, or this type of generation, i.e. the faithless generation. The point is that the end will come before the end of humanity, the disciples or this type of generation. There will be a time of vindication. The major problem with this interpretation in all of its forms is that it is debated whether Yenea in isolation can have a racial sense. Even more difficult is the equation Yenea equals Israel, which combines a rare usage in a narrow technical sense. Luke 16.8 is the only possible example where Yenea people of the same kind, but the sense of this passage is disputed. In most passages, Yenea carries the sense of those living at a given time, the current time, a point that on the surface favors any of the first three views. If this rare sense is the meaning here, it is most unusual. Even assuming the lexical possibility, the following points are against this view in its variations. Number one, the Semitic term that means generation cannot carry the sense of race. Two, a reference to humanity merely states the obvious. The return stops humanity from disappearing or else why come? Number three, a reference to the disciples as a race seems overly subtle, what indicates that they alone are this generation. And lastly, a reference to this type of generation is equally subtle, though of the sub-options, this one is the best, since the saying would make the point that evil people will be judged. So uh, I guess this would be the one that Carlos and Antony are arguing for, this idea that Yunea refers to race, but not really a race of people ethnically, but a type of people, uh, stubborn people, rebellious people, people that are opposed to God, that uh, there will always just be people opposed to God until the end comes. It kind of deflates the, the force of the statement, and it seems like uh, we've had wicked people from the beginning, and we have had wicked people all throughout history, and the fact that there will be wicked people until the end is is hardly worth even saying. Uh, but hey, it is a possibility, and uh, it is sort of like a sub-option on the race idea, according to Bach. Number five is the already-not-yet approach that argues that in Jesus' view, the events of A.D. 70 and the end time are inseparably linked. I kind of like this one, just for the record. So that the fall of Jerusalem guarantees the completion of the other event. This view argues that the end has begun with events leading to the fall. That beginning happens within this generation. He goes on to say, as a result, Jesus is saying that this group of disciples will experience the catastrophe of AD 70 within their lifetime, an event that itself pictures the beginning of end-time events. As such, experiencing the fall in AD 70 is as good as experiencing the end because one event pictures, guarantees, and reflects the other. 
Those who reject this view argue that the things mentioned in the passage explicitly include end-time events. To accept this view also involves a shift in subject back to a focus on A.D. 70, which was seemingly left behind in verse 24 of Luke 21. This view is subtle, too subtle for most, but it does fit the prophetic genre. As such, it may be correct and should be considered as a viable possibility. Number six, and finally, this is the view that I had put forward last week in answer to David Seaborn-Jones. Another solution, Bach, uh, Bach writes, argues that Jesus addresses the disciples as representatives of God's people. So when he speaks of the generation that sees the things, he means the generation that sees the events of the end. Some argue that this view is tautologous, making Jesus say the obvious. When you see the end, you see the end. This misreads the point. What Jesus is saying is that the generation that sees the beginning of the end also sees its end. When the signs come, they will proceed quickly. They will not drag on for many generations. It will happen within a generation. This view is a strong possibility and is the best of the options. The tradition reflected in Revelation shows that the consummation comes very quickly once it comes. The main objection to this view is that Unaya usually refers to the present generation rather than to a deferred generation, a correct point. Nonetheless, in the discourse's prophetic context, the remark comes after making comments about the nearness of the end to certain signs. As such... It is the issue of the signs that controls the passage's force, making this view likely. If this view is correct, Jesus says that when the signs of the beginning of the end come, then the end will come relatively quickly within a generation. It is hard to be dogmatic about the meaning of this difficult text. Well, I realize that was really long, but I wanted to read it out for you because it really demonstrates the various options that are before us. And so my question to you would be, what do you think? This is definitely uh, not something we need to be dogmatic about, but it is something that is really important, as uh, David Seaborn Jones brought up. And I'm still waiting to hear back from him what his view is. So uh, if you have a, a take on this or other resources to recommend that uh, you feel satisfactorily and satisfyingly answer this important text, Matthew 24, 34, then uh, please come on to reststudio.org and leave a comment so that we can all benefit from uh, your research on that. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.